up word Happy to keep his dinner warm Till he comes wearily home From downtown Hi. So, you know, this today's show is about overwork, which means that I had to sort of think about my own attitude towards and relation with overwork. And for most of my life, I probably have been guilty of or exploited by overwork. Uh, Some of it is simply having multiple careers. Uh, Some of it is certain points of my life. Let's say maybe when I joined this company 12 12 years ago, my salary had dropped so low uh, that I had to take on additional work. So yeah, and and I work from home a lot, which makes it hard to regulate, makes it hard even to know when you're working, when you're not, particularly when you do a radio show, which you incorporate your absorption of culture and life into what you do in terms of content. It gets very, very confusing. But I'm pretty comfortable saying that I'm overworked. However, we should also say that overwork is a double-edged coin, right? A double-sided coin Um, in the sense that, you know, if I tell you that a restaurant worker is working 80 hours a week, that seems like a lot because it is a lot. Uh, On the other hand, for medical residents, um, 80 hours a week is a cap that's been put on things. In other words, uh, there's sort of now at least in terms of guidance from from professionals professional organizations, as I understand it, a guidance saying they shouldn't work more than 80 hours a week. <laughs> and, and when you think about it, you know, I mean, the restaurant worker might screw up your order. The medical resident who is working an 80-hour week is somebody who might be rendering decisions that really affect your safety in your life. So anyway, a lot, all jobs are different. All levels of work are different. Uh, but we're going to talk uh, about how, in fact, overwork manifests itself and what we can do about it. We're going to begin with Anat Lechner, uh, a clinical associate professor of management and organizations at Stern School of Business at NYU and a specialist in change management and how to address overwork and employee well-being in the new work environments. Anat Lechner, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, such a great topic of major importance, I'd say. So, and, uh, yeah. So, the complexity to it. There yeah. is complexity. So, when I ask you to describe the problem, obviously you could give me a 30 minute answer to what the problem is. But can you, you know, in brief terms, kind of make the case that there is a, a problem that we could label overwork? There is one. Uh, we know from research that, uh, you know, in, in the US, this is deemed to be one of the factors that uh, drive us to die. So, you know, uh, there is study out there, studies out there that will suggest that 50 hours work week and above or beyond 54 hours uh, of, of a work week uh, is perhaps the major risk for, for dying from, from overwork. So you can you actually can make that uh, statement. Uh, we know from uh, other geographies in, in Japan, uh, this had been a cultural issue that's been prolonging now for several decades. Uh, we know the Europeans were trying to fight this with very strict rules. So, yes, there is a case for overwork. Um, I think it's a little bit more complex than that, though. You know, you, you, you can you can make that case, but I don't know that the contingencies uh, are really deeply looked at. For instance, uh, entrepreneurs that work endless hours and are very satisfied with the cause for which the, they, they drive, towards which they drive. They are satisfied with, with you know, the meaningfulness of their work. They are satisfied with the purposefulness of it. It's, it's fulfilling to them. Um, are they dying as well? Or is it just, you know, someone who works in a day job and is being overworked? 
and that sense of deep fulfillment isn't present. So the, the, there are all sorts of questions that intersect with this issue. I don't think that's, you know, it's, it's not a unifaceted issue. So there's, all, right. there's more to it. So yeah. I think we could maybe divide it up into crudely drawn categories, maybe three or four of them. Some of them would be the people that you just described, people who are so driven uh, and, and possibly so fulfilled uh, by their pursuit of certain goals that working, uh, you know, a 60 or 70 hour week uh, maybe doesn't carry the same risks and, mm-hmm. and isn't experienced the same way. Then there are other people in jobs, and we're going to talk about the gaming industry in this second segment, the, the creation of video games, not gambling, mm-hmm. but uh, where people are just expected to do it. You have to get the job done. Uh, they'll work you very hard, maybe burn you out, maybe get somebody else to replace you when you can't do it anymore. But there's an expectation that you will bend yourself to the schedule. There are other people who, who I think have trouble managing uh, the distinction between work Work, uh, and, and the rest of life, I'm probably in that category. People who are working from home, it's hard to tell sometimes when you're working or not. And there can be a kind of mission creep uh, about how many hours you're working. And then I think the last group of people, and maybe we should talk about them first, are the people who's transitioned from the structure uh, of a single job to the gig economy where you're running around mm-hmm. looking for work. And and my my sense is, you, you would know, but my sense is there are more of those kinds of people and probably it's harder to regulate hours when you're pursuing work job by job by job. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. I think that if you look at the world of work uh, with the changes that are undergoing between us working remotely because of the pandemic, but also more importantly, I'd say, or uh, more fundamentally, the, the change in uh, the employment contract, right? Where more, more and more people find themselves being part of the gig economy. The numbers are quite quite crazy, I'd say, this might be the word. When you look at the uh, even American population, how many people are now part of this uh, uh, group. And so when, when you transition uh, into that type of lifestyle, if you will, um, the boundaries that protected you before. So, you know, one employer, some level of security, a paycheck at the end of the month and so on and so forth, they're gone and you become you.com. And now the question is how competitive you are uh, on a global scale because you are competing on a global scale. Any one of the uh, platforms from, for, you know, gig economy platforms, if it's Behance or Dribble or Upwork or, or Punisha in Iran, for that matter, any one of these platforms is a, a home for uh, talent from all over the world. And so comes a question of uh, how you manage to differentiate yourself and how you manage to sustain and how you manage to drive value. And you're as good as the number of likes that you uh, receive on your last professional gig. The survival mode, I'd say, that people are pushed to enter, especially when they transition, Perhaps later it's a slightly different story, but uh, once you gain momentum, once you gain credibility, once you gain uh, likes, if you will, it's perhaps uh, a little less of an issue, although you always have to deliver. But just the transition itself from uh, someone pays you at the end of the month to you, again, be part of you.com and you need to um, create the, the value and you need to deliver the value and you need to collect on this value and you need to continuously upgrade the value. This transition is very difficult and uh, it's easy to see how someone will get sucked into it and this distinction between work and life collapses altogether. 
because because work is life because that's what your life is dependent on it's a really it's a survival game and there is no practice i mean the person that came from the nine to five job even if their nine to five was nine to six or nine to seven but there was there was a beginning and then there was an end and then there was a weekend and so forth right and responsibilities were uh divided up and so forth a person that came from this life into the life where they manage themselves not just as an entrepreneur in that sense but specifically as a gig worker employee um are tr- they are thrusted into a world that the it's it's a it's a high high sea right it's it's very dynamic it's very turbulent and it's very different from anything they've ever seen before right and however uh, they, however imperfect they are too there are state and federal regulations about what employers can ask employees to do in uh, circumstances under which yeah. they have to pay them time and a half obviously if you are your own boss then there really isn't anybody uh, who's uh, eligible to kind of step in and, and regulate the amount right. of work that you ask yourself to do but i want to ask you because it seems to me that everything that you're saying is absolutely true and easily observable and and studyable but there's another Another thing that's happening within the last two years that's kind of running on a parallel track, and that is, I mean, there was a sequence where uh, people had jobs and maybe those jobs were too hard and involved too many hours. And then a lot of the jobs went away because there was a shutdown and companies laid people off. And then there was uh, at least a temporary uh, gush of money uh, coming in the form of, of unemployment, mm-hmm. uh, and which allowed people to to maybe catch their breath, not uh, work for a while because their job was gone, and, and not starve to death. You know that money then went away. But what we seem to have is, you know, I mean, a pretty dramatic reduction in pe- of people seeking reemployment, right? The uh, unemployment now is kind of almost dividing evenly between people who are trying to get new jobs and people who aren't. Uh, and, and there seems to be a rebellion against some of this, against at least some of the jobs that do involve an employer who wants 80 hours of your time. So I, I, I guess I'm sort of wondering, uh, it's hard to talk about this because it's so new, but yeah. it does seem as though the power dynamic dynamic changed, as a, at least in some sectors for some people? I, I think that's correct, but I think that it's very temporary. You know, this great resignation phenomenon, or uh, what is now uh, be talked on as, as the great reshuffling uh, phenomenon, where people just put the keys on the table and they leave, and they don't necessarily leave to another job. They just leave in order to just catch their breath and re recalculate course, so to speak. Uh, indeed, a new phenomenon, and coupled with uh, you know the number of strikes that we've seen in the country, which perhaps is the highest, uh, um, depending on who's counting, but I think it's the highest uh, that we've seen in, in a very long while. Uh, in fact, the last time we saw something like this was perhaps post World War II. This is an interesting, uh, an interesting coupling, and we've seen the unions, for instance, stepping in, and now America is uh, at least 60 some percent of the people are in favor of the return of the unions. Uh, People are looking for better work conditions. People are looking to be treated more fairly. People are looking for better uh, wages. And like you said, uh, they're no longer in in medley in love with the 80 hour work week. That said, um, what we are seeing together with this is the emergence of the machine, so to speak, right? So artificial intelligence and additional uh, sophisticated technologies that uh, one of the first things they do is they automate work processes where, uh, you know, sophistication still is there and there'll be jobs for the highly sophisticated ones, but there'll be many jobs that are being uh, retired and uh, the predictions are quite gloom. And so the idea that someone will negotiate for better terms now because they just had it 
um, is appealing, but has a very short term to it. I think that employers will perhaps, like you said, the power the power transition now to employees. I think it's temporary. I think employers will uh, attempt to uh, satisfy the the in, in the current moment the current requirement, just so workflows will not be severely interrupted. But uh, we already see uh, uh, management doubling down on investments in machine, so that automation will uh, kick in. So between automation that's increasing and will continue to increase exponentially, and very many professions are undergoing that process at this point. In fact, there are studies that say that about 50% of the professions we currently have will not exist within the next 10 years. And so that's a, that's a pretty big number of people that are going home. Between this and the gig economy that steps in to fulfill some of the work requirements that are needed on a more of an ad hoc, um, you know, uh, format. I don't think that it's very intelligent for people to just worry about what they do not do, uh, no longer want to do. I think it's important to worry about this, but I think it's even more important to think on what you should be doing and how you should transition to um, work that earns you, I'll say, sustainable value. And forgive me for the buzzwords, but if you take the buzz away from the buzzwordiness away from this, and just stay with the essence. Yeah. People have to think on, you know, in in the in the in the reality that's emerging. What does it mean to to add new value? So a designer uh, can see a lot of their work being relegated to the machine over the next ten years because that's the direction we've already taken, and the machine becomes increasingly smarter in visual recognition, in patterns, colors, cuts, and whatever else. But the designers of the metaverse, for instance they see now unbelievable inflow of work. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's one of the transitions uh, from you know yesterday to a new world where you can be relevant. And it requires that you understand the crypto world, the blockchain world, the, the metaverse world, what's value there. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm 67. I'm determined not to understand the blockchain world. <laughs> but, um... but but here, you know, but, but you know, 67 years old, but we know that we will leave, I mean, we can have this conversation 50 years from now again. Right. We will live longer, right? So there's a question on sustainability. There's a question on, uh, I think it again is an existential question. It's an existential question, but I think it's a question of national culture too, or societal culture. I mean, part of the problem I think is that our American values are still tied to this notion that you win the game if you get richer than other people. If you acquire uh, more goods and capital, that's how you win the game. Right. And and so right. so there's no reason to have an off switch if that's your driving understanding of your role as a worker in a society. Whereas, I mean, aren't there, I, I sense in my reading that there are societies where communitarianism is a bigger deal. The sense may be that if we're all thriving as a community, it's maybe less important for me to earn an extra five or $10,000 a year by pushing myself harder. Yeah, I think it's a fair point. But I think that, you know, capitalism, the way we know it, uh, is perhaps being challenged at this moment. And I think that uh, in, in a world that's becoming increasingly more global, uh, the question of local cultures is, while important, is not necessarily explaining it all, right? For as long as the government doesn't step in, as it did right now with the pandemic, right, and, and paid some, shall we call it, a, a form of UBI in a temporary way. But for as long as the government does not step in, and the government can uh, afford UPI, uh, UBI, universal basic income, if, if there is a way to tax the machine, 
for that the machine had to be advanced and and people would be, would be going on by then right so for as long as the government does not step in to to take that role and cannot uh, people are uh, thrown into some sort of a global competition at the individual level it's not just that gm competes against uh whatever hyundai it's also that you and i compete against someone who wakes up now in india to feed their family and as a person who hires from the gig economy, I, I, I've seen this firsthand. I've seen how, you know, the, how I myself select talent uh, for my own team. And it's not about earning another $10,000. It's about actually earning the cost of, of, of your living for as long as you live. That's a great point. Um, we're going to pause here. We've been talking to Anat Lechner, uh, a clinical associate professor of management and organization at the Stern School of Business at NYU, specialist in change management and how to address overwork and employee well-being in these new work environments. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you very much. All right. We're going to grab a quick break here. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about one specific industry, maybe not one that you think about a lot, when you think about, I don't know, medical workers, uh, where overwork has become a rampant problem. You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. Saying to Peter, don't you call me, because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. A young boy I was, belly out of my home. I stepped to the world with a meaning to roam. I signed with a captain who promised me gold, an adventure to quicken the heart of the bold. For 14 odd years I did struggle alone. For the cause I worked my fingers down to the bone. Saw naught but the scuppers, saw naught of my pay. There was cast off and sent on my way. Oh, a curse upon you, sorrow for the For some reason, this entire show has made me think back on the earliest stirrings of this particular show, the Colin McEnroe show, which started 12 years ago. And at the time, I had one producer. His name was Patrick Scahill. Uh, and we did five shows a week. And that's when I learned the word karoshi. Uh, uh, because, so karoshi is a Japanese term meaning death from overwork. 
And and I learned it so that when Patrick died, I would be able to tell his parents what took his life. I, I would just say, Karoshi, Google it. Um, fortunately, we, we found some other ways to deal with this. Uh, and Patrick's ultimate and very intelligent way of dealing with this was to become a reporter, not a producer. But we have a fuller producing staff now so that people don't feel that kind of overwork. But there seem to be certain sectors of employment that can't escape that problem of just driving their, their employees really hard. And it turns out that game development, video game development, is one of those areas. So here to talk about that is Keith Fuller, a consultant for game development companies on leadership and culture and the founder of All About EX. That's employee experience, a consulting firm geared towards helping startups improve employee experience. Uh, Keith Fuller, welcome to our conversation. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me, Colin. So, so maybe can you say something about the structure and nature of this industry? Why, why would it be prone, you know, presumably more prone to this particular problem uh, of incredibly long hours uh, than, than, than maybe other slightly comparable businesses? Sure. I think there are a few key elements that I would trace the problem back to, one of which being this is a comparatively young industry. Yes, game development goes back several decades now, but uh, it, it considers itself uh, a unique snowflake because it employs humans, unlike all other industries, I guess. <laughs> but as a result, uh, because of its, its self-imposed viewpoint of uniqueness, uh, it kind of refuses to learn lessons from other industries very quickly. And it was also founded predominantly by creative types, uh, certainly in the modern era, there is at least as much creativity, the arts and, and design going in, as there is the science of computer engineering. And art and design are not prone to working well with project management, at least in my experience. Uh, so that's another ingredient. But then you also have the difficulty, certainly in what's termed AAA game development, big budgets, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, you have the difficulty of deadline-driven, big-budget, complex software development. And so when you put all these ingredients together, you are likely to encounter, without the imposition of significant discipline, a lot of overwork. And we say when we say a lot of overwork, I know it's hard to quantify and a lot of it's anecdotal, but I mean, do you, can you give us a sense of, uh, of how severe the problem is? Sure. So uh, happily, there are areas of the games industry that have improved over the years, uh, but there are still cases that, that crop up in the news now and then of teams that will work uh, six, sometimes seven days a week, uh, well in excess of 10 or 12, uh, sometimes more than 14 hours. Uh, there are people that will tell you about, oh, you only work 80 hours a week because I have to work 100. Uh, happily, this is not, by and large, 12 months a year. Uh, it tends to be cyclical, but there are definitely teams and projects where people will work for three, maybe six months of the kind of pace that I just described. You know, I want to go back to something you said at the beginning, which is the, the one component of this, a large component of, of this is creativity. It wouldn't seem to me that creativity flourishes in situations of overwork. It would seem to me that if you want people to be at their best creatively, you maybe let them work at their own pace or, or I mean, the idea anyway that you'd be screaming at them about a deadline uh, and pushing them harder and harder through these kind of last minute pushes uh, would be antithetical towards your goal of creativity. 
that's fair. Uh, and there's a, a, a really good body of evidence to support that in the realm of, of behavioral theory and, and psychological research. If you want to do knowledge work, if you want to do creative work, uh, the kinds of carrots and sticks that would typically be imposed historically in, in project management circles just don't provide you any sort of benefit when you're dealing with this kind of labor. But that doesn't prevent comparatively uneducated managers and leaders from trying them anyway. It sounds like one of the things that, that's happening is that there is, at least hypothetically anyway, um, a series of waves of potential employees coming into the market, coming into the job market. Uh, my sense is that one of the ways these companies are dealing with this is, is working these uh, employees to a, a point of burnout, at which point they go off and do something else with their lives, and you just kind of hire the next wave. Is that the kind of churn we're talking about? Sadly, that does still occur in some circles, and you can you can pick these out uh, with the somewhat experienced eye when you look at job postings across the games industry. When you see uh, job openings that rely heavily on verbiage about uh, must be passionate, this tends to be code for we will happily exploit anyone who's bad at setting personal boundaries. The case tends to be you get a lot of starry-eyed graduates uh, from college or even high school that have this dream of making video games. Uh, God bless them. They want to do something that, that they deem to be fulfilling, but they are willing to put too much of themselves on the line to do so. And many companies know that. That's maybe where you come in too. So, Because um, most companies, I would assume most companies in this industry, they, they don't have as a goal getting people to work 90 hours a week. They have as a goal developing successful products, video game products that are creative, that people like and enjoy and purchase, and getting those things done fast enough so that they can start another one uh, and keep that kind of churn coming. But in other words, if that's their goal, then they probably shouldn't necessarily want people to work 90 hours a week. You want people to do really great work and in a relatively timely fashion. So I assume that's where you come in as a consultant and try to get them to see how they might get to their actual goal without squeezing people that hard. Exactly. Certainly my own background is such that, uh, you know, I, I worked 11 years in the big budget game development circles and I saw all the downsides. I, I saw people with sleep disorders and broken marriages and chronic stress fatigue and all of these things. And I know that that you can leave fairly shattered lives in the wake of producing a hit game. But I also know from anecdotes, from data, from all sorts of research that I, that's out there, that you can produce similarly wonderful software without exploiting humans to do it. And so my job is to help companies understand, here are some of the things that you can change about your practices, your processes, the culture of your company that will get you that great game on time without having to crush people's souls to do it. I'll give you a, a classic example that I talked, almost every company has this difficulty, and it's certainly one I encountered early on in my career. We as a games industry rarely train leaders. We go from the mentality of, for instance, you're a really good programmer, we're going to put you in a lead programmer role. Now you're in charge of several programmers. 
although we never educated you on how to do so, not realizing that there's a distinct difference in skill sets between being an individual contributor and being a people leader. So without training leaders, how can one expect to provide a supportive management environment in which you even care about the well-being of the people for whom you're responsible? So one of the first things that I look into with a company and certainly wind up recommending is you need to educate your leaders. You need to train them in communication practices, how to have difficult conversations, how to create an environment of psychological safety, how to uh, manage people's performance in a healthy way, how to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with the people on your team. So once I start people down this practice of educating your leaders, it's amazing the difference that can make for everybody on the team. It also seems like one of the things we have to acknowledge is that the, that person you're talking about, the developer who's promoted without the necessary training, um, that there are a lot of companies, not just gaming companies, where the managers have as big an overwork problem as anybody else. I, I, from my own experience, I was working at a different radio station and the news director was working herself to death. And one of the things that she was doing was that when people would not make their shifts or she didn't have somebody to work a weekend shift, she'd do it. She'd anchor the news, anchor the news. And she was coming in really, really early in the morning, leaving late at night, not getting a lot of exercise. I didn't think she was sleeping very well. I finally went to management. I, and it wasn't even any of my business. And I said, you have a wellness problem here. <laughs> you, you know, you, you're exploiting somebody's workaholism. It's it's not a you know a kind of grunt level employee. It's the director of your newsroom, but you know she's going to drop dead if you keep this up. And they just sort of looked at me like, I wish you hadn't said that out loud because now this conversation is a matter of record. I don't really intend to do anything about <laughs> what you're talking about, but you just made it a lot more uncomfortable. And that's a problem, right? If you say these things out loud in some of these environments, people don't aren't necessarily happy that you brought it up because now it's maybe a little bit more actionable. So. I assume one of the things you have to do is, once again, change the attitudinal climate of any company. Absolutely. Culture, the actions that we take as a company, is impacted by everyone. Uh, if I was hired yesterday, if I have the lowest tenure, or if I'm the CEO who's been here for 30 years, I have an impact on the culture. And if you have a historical culture within the company of valuing overwork, of uh, delivering to any given worker uh, this glorious red badge of courage for having slept under your desk the past two nights to get more work done for a deadline. If these are the sorts of things that you celebrate, uh, either explicitly or implicitly, then you'll wind up with situations like what you just described, where somebody who sees something in, uh, in the team as an efficiency, somebody else isn't getting the job done, will step in and step in and step in and step in because what they've seen in the company culture is that this will be celebrated far more than if I value my own mental and physical well-being. Is, is part of the problem in, in the video game development uh, sector the issue of perfection? I mean, there's a way in which you know, the, the, I don't know, you can have a bad night as maybe a, a food server and then a good night the next night or something like that. But there's a way in which these games either work or they don't, right? They If they're full of bugs, uh, that's, you know, th that's the end of things. Is that one of the reasons that the, you have these kind of home stretch crunch periods where people are working so hard? 
Absolutely. That is sadly a driving force behind a lot of it. And there are a number of reasons behind that, one of which is you do get people, whether they be starry-eyed graduates or uh, jaded and cynical industry veterans, who are driven because they want to produce a really good product. They want the game to be free of bugs. They want it to be technically amazing. They want it to be artistically glorious. And there's no reason why we should deny them that, that passion of theirs. However, that can be exploited. And in a capitalist society where we absolutely have to get the game on store shelves or, or digitally available in time for Black Friday or whatever holiday comes up, then where the rubber meets the road is, uh, listen, this has to get done. And it has to be as bug free as we can unreasonably make it uh, when we launch the software or the public will uh, will be an outcry and we'll have all sorts of uh, you know, public relations issues to deal with. So it has to be perfect, it has to be glorious, and it has to be on time. And anybody who deals with project management will tell you you're trying to pick all three of the things where typically you only get to have two. <laughs> all right. So l last question. Are you optimistic or pessimistic at this point? I mean, nationally, we're going through the so-called great resignation where people are, are leaving jobs they don't like or refusing to seek work uh, until they feel as though you know they, they can have it on something approaching their own terms. What's going on within your industry? I'll tell you, one of the things that does make me optimistic is that with, uh, with so many people feeling more open to comment on social media about their work environments, we are seeing more of collective efforts. Uh, and to put a finer point on that, the company for which I used to work, Activision, is currently in the news because uh, they are embroiled in some, uh, we'll just say unionization issues. Uh, they have a swath of lower paid entry level employees that have been mistreated to the point that they are now seeking unionization. And so this is, uh, to my mind, it's unfortunate that things come to this point. Uh, my opinion is that leadership should just fulfill their end of the social contract and take better care of their people. But if they don't, in, under capitalism, this is one of the few levers that workers have to pull, collective bargaining, unionization. And that's ongoing in some fairly large companies throughout the industry, not just in North America. So that gives me hope that when I see unionization efforts actually gaining traction and being in the news uh, at large companies, that this issue has perhaps reached enough of a tipping point that leaders throughout the industry are going to have to take notice and they're going to have to say, wait, aren't there steps we can be taking to take better care of our people and still hit deadlines and still please our shareholders. All right. Thank you so much. We've been talking to Keith uh, Fuller, a consultant for game development companies on leadership and culture, the founder of All About EX, that's employee experience, consulting firm geared towards helping startups improve employee experience. You can read his uh, piece, uh, Fixing Overwork Isn't Easy, in Polygon or at polygon.com. Thanks, Keith. We'll take a break. We're going to come back with one more segment. Remember when you tried to kill me twice? Well, how we laughed and laughed, except I wasn't laughing. Under the circumstances, I've been shockingly nice. You 
want your freedom taken That's what I'm counting on I used to want you dead But now I only want you gone We're back. Uh, before I proceed any further, speaking of people who work very hard, I have to thank Kat Pastor, our technical producer. Uh, she's technically producing this as well as most of our other shows. Uh, and uh, also Dylan Reyes, who's actually an intern with us. Our interns have been really amazing. Uh, and, and each of our two interns working in this season have produced their own shows. Dylan also is kind of learning how to do a lot of Kat's job. Uh, so it's been exciting to have these young people around. Um, so, yeah, we're talking about overwork today. Um, and, you know, I mean, I just I can't stress enough how scary this is in certain industries. Uh, I think probably for most of us, the medical industry is where it is the most scary. Uh, what we're seeing now is kind of almost a burnout uh, vortex where, I mean, just to take nurses for one example, uh, nurses are leaving because the hours are so punishing and because the conditions now in the era of COVID uh, are so terrifying. They leave. There are staff shortages. You've got hospitals trying to incentivize nurses to work e even longer hours or to uh, forego for a while or postpone vacations, things like that, uh, which creates kind of a second tier of burnout. Now the nurses trying to cover for the missing nurses are also burning out. If we don't find some some way to address these kinds of problems, they are going to show up on our doorstep in really terrifying ways. And probably that medical sector is the first place. So what are we going to do about this? Well, what we're going to do right now is talk to Dr. Alex Pang, uh, the author of uh, the books Shorter, Rest, and The Distraction Addiction, and the founder of Strategy and Rest, a consultancy devoted to helping companies and individuals harness the power of rest to shorten our workdays while staying focused and productive. So welcome to our show, first of all. Oh, thanks for having me. And so, you know, that all sounds great. Harness the power of rest to shorten our workdays while staying focused and productive. Easy to say, maybe harder to do. So, so where does where does any business entity or employee, I mean, and or somebody working in the gig economy, where do you start? How do you make a beginning? Well, you know, the companies that I have studied that have moved to four-day weeks, first of all, are in all kinds of industries, right? It's sort of professionals and creative services, but it's also manufacturing. There were sort of care homes that have done it. So there were sort of a there are now a lot of ways into shortening working hours. But what I see, and in uh, both in companies that do it themselves and companies that I work with, is that generally there are kind of three things that you kind of zoom in on. One of them is making meeting shorter because you know I think this is something that you know everybody complains about, and so if and if you can win back some time with meetings, then sort of that goes a long way to showing that this is uh, that this uh, that a strategy of sort of consciously reducing working hours is viable. Um, there are also a lot of thoughtfulness about how to use technology better. So that techno technologies go from being a kind of continual source of distraction in our workdays to something that helps us focus and be more mindful. And then finally, some redesign of the workday itself, right? Introducing periods where sort of people can be sort of focused, can work on sort of their most important stuff without feeling the obligation to answer the phone or Sort of to get into those, you know, to answer that one quick question that turns into a ten-minute conversation, and I think that the important thing here is that you know this is a this is a pattern we're seeing 
sort of in all kinds of industries that allows companies to move to four-day weeks or other kinds of shorter work weeks without cutting productivity um, and without cutting salaries. And so it really is a win-win both for individuals and for organizations. Right. In a way, I keep coming back to this uh, in this episode, there's a way in which we need to change some of our national culture. And maybe it has changed, and and I'm just kind of uh, echoing things from the distant past. But it seems to me that we valorize uh, indefatigable workers or maybe even executives. And, you know, people like Lee Iacocca and Jack Welch would, you know, write these books about what great CEOs they were and how hard they worked and how they never got tired and how they pulled themselves up. And, and that becomes the story, right? That becomes kind of the story of success and fulfillment in America. And there doesn't seem to be a corresponding valorizing of people who who knew when to go for a walk, when to take a a little break, when to do some bird watching. Uh, It seems like that story doesn't get told as enthusiastically, at least when it's told about capitalism. Absolutely. You know, and I think we have uh, sort of a tons of examples of people who are very public about how they've become incredible successes by working, you know, by sleeping only four or five hours a night um, kind of things. And there are not many stories about sort of those same people taking, you know, a, you know, a week or 10 days off every three months and, you know, going to Fiji to jet ski or whatever, you know, whatever other kinds of things that they actually do. But, you know, I think that the sort of uh, that, in companies that move to four-day weeks, the rhetoric becomes uh, that you do this because you're actually really good at what you do, right? Other companies need five or six days a week in order to get this to get this work done. We only need four. Who is it then who's actually better at this job? You know, another thing is that they is that they've they've kind of rethought what careers ought to look like. That you know, sort of the we have this romantic ideal of passionate work as like this all-consuming sort of affair. But you know, if you love what you do, do you really want to burn out doing it in five years, or would you prefer to do it for fifty years? Right? If you, you know, it's a bit like you know a tempestuous relationship versus a marriage. And you know, if you really enjoy this. Figuring out how to do it for a really long time, figuring out how to build a culture in an organization that help make that possible is, I think, offers just as many challenges and just as many rewards as constructing a culture that, you know, is like all, you know, energy drink and foosball tables and staying up until 2 a.m. with results that are just as good and an organization that performs just as well. Let me just sort of reframe it a different way, though. It seems to me that we still live in business environments where if you go to management and say, you know, geez, I missed two dinners with my family this week. And last week I missed my kid's soccer game. I want to be able to get to that and stuff like that. You know, it's just as easy to perceive that person as a liability, right? That person has a bunch of extra work needs that are getting in the way of what you, the manager or, or the, the ownership, needs from that particular worker. And so I think inevitably there are a lot of business organizations that are going to devalue that worker. They're going to say, eh, <laughs> doesn't have the fire in the belly, doesn't have the eye of the, eye of the tiger. So what do we do about that? 
You know, I think that the uh, you're you're exactly right, and that it's you know it's easier to pay lip service to the importance of work life balance, you know, or whatever we call it these days, than it is to actually implement policies that do it. And I think that the you know one of the keys is to recognize that this is not an individual personal problem. This is a problem that we all struggle with. And it's one that we can actually solve, that more effectively solve together, rather than thinking of it in terms of sort of this person's commitment or this person's need for flexibility coming potentially at the expense of the organization or their coworkers. That I think is really, really key. The idea of per- that personalizing these uh, personalizing these things even though yes we experience them personally kind of makes it harder for us to actually come up with enduring solutions thinking of them in collective terms thinking of them as things that require cultural and structural change is actually sort of a better uh, a better and more enduring route to good solutions the final thing i would point out is that managers themselves that bosses face all the same kinds of problems with burnout with work life balance unsustainability that sort of uh, that employees do and founders and entrepreneurs even more so and so things like you know, a move to a four-day week is something that benefits them just as much as it benefits their employees. It's not something that's, you know, a zero-sum game, but rather it's, you know, it's uh, that making this change for everyone makes it a win-win for everyone. You know, talk a little bit more about the four-day work week. That idea has been around for a long time. Uh, it doesn't seem to really get traction, maybe as a result of everything we've just been through, where people just aren't physically present at work that much anyway. Maybe that, that helps it change. But but is is there any kind of growing acceptance of that idea? There is. You know, um, I've been studying this for the last several years, and I've been amazed to see, even during the pandemic, you know, companies taking it up, partly because the work that they did in order to go remote um, created a kind of technical foundation for sort of shortening working hours, combined with the fact that you know people were really dealing with big issues around stress and having to you know manage homeschooling, et cetera, that created a greater need for sort of flexible hours or shorter hours. And we're now starting to see, you know, this not just playing out at the company level, but also governments getting into it, right? Iceland's public sector, their unions negotiated sort of a shorter work week for their employees. So that's about 15% of the of the workforce. And that went to, into effect this year. And the United Arab Emirates announced that starting January 3rd, they're going to move to a four and a half day work week. So the work week is going to end Friday at noon, um, both for government employees, but also for schools. And I think that could be a real game changer. Because if they're able to make that work, then it'll pull companies along. You've got a lot of global, you know, companies with uh, sort of that are located there, and so the lessons that they learn about how to make a shorter work week sort of function are likely to make their way to other places in Asia, to the U.S., to Europe. So I think that we're, you know, that uh, that this is. It's a change that's been coming uh, that has been coming slowly, and the four-day week, of course, is something that people have been talking about for a very long time across the political spectrum. But uh, but I think we are seeing a moment now where the combination combination of pressures and opportunities make it possible that and make it desirable in a way that we haven't seen before. 
you know, in a way, we're in a strange moment uh, in the sense that um, you know, we have a lot of people working remotely. And for me and for a lot of managers, I don't know, my whole idea is I don't really need to see your shiny little face unless there's something in particular that's happening right now. So work from home and let me know when you get the show ready or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the problem here is that right now, and my senior producer, Lily Tyson, just pointed this out, nobody reads, needs to like stop working and go meet friends at a restaurant or go see a movie or anything like that because they can't do that. And, and I'm sort of wondering, I mean, I think in a way we're, we're able able to mine a load uh, of otherwise unexpended time right now because people don't have that much else to do. I'm kind of wondering what what life is going to be like when that disappears and people really want to do stuff besides work. Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the big questions with the future of work. Um, you know, we have uh, and I think one of the things we need to do is recognize that the idea that, you know, work-life boundaries have a you know, have been erased, that it's like work-life blend or whatever. This is actually essentially a cultural construct. This is uh, you know, this is an idea that uh, that uh, sort of that people have played around with or promulgated, but you know it's also one that uh, that brings a certain amount of downside with it, and it's also not an inevitability, right? I think we've we all recognize now the value of routines and boundaries, having lost them, having gone in the you know sort of work from home mode or having other strange things happen to happen to our work, and that this is you know, and I think it's it's been a great lesson in how having you know having clearer barriers or boundaries between our work lives and our personal lives actually make both of those things better and that the figuring out how to sort of uh, how to how to recreate those when we go to something that's maybe just a tiny bit more normal um, is going to be one of the really important things that will help shape the future of work. Oh, I hope so much that you are right. Uh, Dr. Alex Pang, author of the book Shorter Rest and the Distraction Addiction and the founder of Strategy and Rest, a consultancy devoted to helping companies with exactly these problems and individuals with these problems. Thanks to you. Thanks to Dylan Rays. Thanks to Cat Pastor. Thanks to everybody who listened today. Uh, go take a break. Go take a walk. Teach yourself how to play the harmonica. Do something other than work. 